I don't know about you, but I love a good underdog story. Who loves a good underdog story? That person, the storyline. Who, who loves a good? Come on, let me see your hands. Don't be bashful. There you go, all the way up. I love an underdog story. I don't know what it is about the story. Maybe because I'm I'm under tall. I don't know. I just there's something about being uh, just the underdog that is compelling to me. Maybe it's because I grew up in a small town and I I looked at the big city and I just kind of settled into the small town. I don't know what it is. But I've always been drawn to underdog stories. Now, if you're in community group, you will have an opportunity to talk about your underdog story that you like. But I want to tell you about one that that I like. And it actually comes from the realm of the NFL and a gentleman by the name of Kurt Warner. Who's heard of the name Kurt Warner? Mid-90s, I think, late-90s. And then a little bit beyond that, a really good football player. But his story didn't really start out that way. He actually started out by playing football or actually going to northern Iowa. I don't know about you if if you've ever gone to Iowa or if you've ever been in the Midwest. There's not much there. And it's a really small school. The reason why I know it's a small school is because the college I went to actually played them in sports. So there's like, it's not very big. And northern Iowa is not that much of a, a big spotlighted type of area. But he didn't even play football until his senior year. And then when he played football, People started to notice him and see, wow, this guy's really incredible. He had an opportunity then to, I think, try out for, eventually try out for the Packers and got cut from them. And then after he got cut from them, then he went into literally bagging groceries for minimum wage. So imagine that, that, that turn of events. And here's the, the tension builds in the, in the storyline of the underdog. So then he goes from bagging groceries but he didn't give up on football. And I want you to know he also didn't give up on his faith because he is, he is and has, has, as long as he's been in the limelight, an outspoken Christian. But didn't give up on his dream as to what he wanted to do and what he wanted to pursue, continued to work on his craft. Eventually played in the Arena Football League, which no longer exists in the NFL Europe. I don't know if it exists or not. But then somebody noticed him, and then he ended up playing and had a chance to, to be the backup for the St. Louis Rams. And out of the St. Louis Rams, just amazing, again, how all of these things line up. The starting quarterback gets hurt. So then now you have the underdog story, and he comes in, and he turns, he turns football upside down. Um, he, coming from where he was, and then, then he becomes the top quarterback, Super Bowl winner, uh, the greatest show on turf is what it was termed, their, their offense. It was just an incredible thing. But he was, he was the underdog and then now when I look at his story, I'm compelled by it because I'm like, oh, there's something that's so good about that. But if you call yourself a Christian, maybe the reason why you are connected to the underdog story is because for Christians, we're all the underdogs. Because all of us, if you claim the name of Christ, we are all a prophetic minority in the world that we live in. That we in our culture, no different than the time of, of the writing of 1 Peter that we're going to get to in just a few minutes. No different then than now. But yet what we can see and maybe start to believe is we can start to believe that we're not a prophetic minority, but we're the majority because we have freedoms in this country and because we live in the 21st century and because we have all of the things, we can put our faith so out front and we can look so Christian. But what we've noticed, and hopefully you've gotten this so far, and if you've listened to some of these messages we've been walking through First Peter For every person who actually identifies with Christ and they live out the principles that are governed in 
this collection of writings, if you actually take God's word seriously, you will learn pretty quickly that you are a prophetic minority. When you, when you actually take the word of God and you apply it into your life, you're going to find that there's opposition from people who, of course, the people who are far from God, but also there's going to be opposition for those who claim the name of God, but yet their life doesn't look like it. We call those types of folks cultural Christians. So we can become convinced again that we are the prophetic or the, that we're the majority, but in essence, we're really the prophetic minority living in our day. And as soon as we start living out these principles, we're going to see this is true. What we're also going to see today is when, with Peter, his message, he just comes out in this message of 1 Peter of understanding that if you claim the name of Christ, that you're going to suffer. So this whole book is, is largely about suffering, suffering from things that happen inside the church, suffering from, from events or people outside of the church, but suffering no less. The bottom line for today is this, and we get this right from our passage, our faithfulness rests in our faithful creator. The way that we can be the prophetic minority in our day and age it's not by, by the clothes that we wear and by the verses we put on our social media feed and by having the bumper sticker on the back of our car or even claiming some sort of exclusive religious privilege or being connected to some specific religious group. It's not that. That's, that's, honestly, that isn't going to take you where you want to be. It's our faithfulness rest in our faithful creator, not the things that we can do, but in who Jesus Christ is. This is what... Peter's message is largely about. In 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, we jump into the, back into the storyline of 1 Peter. And what we're going to see ultimately is six different principles that when you find yourself to be the prophetic minority, six different principles right from the passage that you can clearly expect to see in your life. And knowing and some encouragement here too, it's not just the fact that they're coming, but also what it's to produce. So let's get into 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. This is what the passage says. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the Spirit of glory and of God rest on you. Verse 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, here's our final verse. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Doing good is a common theme also in 1 Peter. I'm not going to talk about that really in the course of this sermon. Um, you can read the rest of 1 Peter to get that, and, and I've already talked about it in the past. But I want us to see these six principles that will greatly impact our life and help us to have a, a, a spiritual framework 
of when the spiritual battles come and when persecution happens or if we have to suffer because of our faith. So the first one is this. When suffering comes your way, don't be surprised. When suffering comes, don't be surprised. That's what it says in verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. So don't be surprised by suffering. What's interesting here, and, and you wouldn't know this unless you know like a little deeper dive, uh, a, little, a little deeper cut, if you will, into 1 Peter There's two main types of people that he's speaking to. He's speaking to the Jews and he's speaking to the Greeks. I believe in this passage and particularly in this verse, he's not talking to the Jews because the Jews knew suffering. They knew, just as they do now, you can even look at the geography of where the nation of Israel is and you look how they're surrounded by a bunch of enemies. You can even look at this and just see this, and you look at such a small tract of land, and you can see of how the, the, their enemies and the oppressors are all around them. So I believe he's not talking to the Jews. I mean, they would know this. Read the Old Testament. They were enslaved in Egypt. This was, this was part of the, the story that would be carried on generation to, gener- to generation. The Jews knew suffering, but the Greeks did not. I believe who he has in mind are, are the Greeks who've, who've professed faith in Christ. Now, the Greeks, they didn't know suffering. What they knew, they knew was pleasure. And they knew that, just as very common in our day, they knew that we can go into the public sphere, and now our public sphere is social media. We can just talk about things, and we can agree to disagree. As long as I have my voice heard and you have your voice heard, everything's fine. What Peter is telling them and us, he says, you can expect that there is going to be suffering and you shouldn't be surprised by it if you claim the name of Jesus. Because when you claim the name of Jesus, what you're saying is you're claiming an exclusivity with Jesus Christ. And if, if Jesus is, if you are just carrying the name of Jesus exclusively, What goes in it is, if you say, I'm with Christ, you are also saying, I'm not a Stoic, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a New Ager, I'm not an atheist, I am in Christ. So what he was saying to the the Greeks, he says, don't be surprised at this suffering. He says, you no longer are primarily known as being Greek, now you're a Christian. And the reason why they're coming after you is because they came after me. There's three different things that I want us to see uh, rallied around this idea of suffering and how we shouldn't be surprised by it. Then we get, just give you three different reasons why the suffering is the new normal that Peter is getting at. The first one is this, is because God has chosen for you and I to remain living in a fallen world. We should expect suffering because we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world and God out of his, you know, his predetermined plan over the world, what God could have done is, as soon as you gave your life to Christ, he could have taken you right from earth and he could have just left the earth to all the heathens. Right? He could have. But he didn't. And the reason why he didn't is because of other passages that we may run across, like Matthew 5.14, that when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, That's the reason why. 
He says that for, for the light of Christ to shine and for God to be glorified the most is not to just have Christians to leave the earth, but no, he says, you are the light of the world. And let me just tell you, brothers and sisters in Christ, let me tell you, the light shines the brightest in the darkness. And we live in a dark world. We live in a dark world. So the first reason is because we do live in a fallen world. We should expect suffering if we claim the name of Christ because we live in a fallen world. We should also expect suffering because our identity is in Christ. This is what it says in John 15, starting in verse 18. It says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. This is what Jesus says. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. That's what Jesus says, is because your identity is connected to me. You can expect suffering for your faith if your identity is in Christ. This is what Jesus is getting at. He says, they would treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. In other words, they don't know the Father. They're lost. The, the third thing to support this idea is this that God intends to use difficulty and suffering to promote the continuance of His work in your life. God intends to use this difficulty and the suffering that you endure to continue His work in your life. This is actually what He said in 1 Peter 1. Let's look at verse 3. This is actually what He said. He says, "'Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power and until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Listen to this. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. And notice what he says next. And that they may result in three things. That they may, re may result in praise, in glory, and honor to God. So the suffering ultimately is to bring about praise, glory, and honor to God. So God intends on using this difficulty, the pressure, the oppression that we may face in our workplaces, in our families, if we take the, the claims of Scripture and we actually live it out, He intends to use all of that pressure for His glory and also for our good. Second principle right from verse 13 and 14, is this. We need to determine to rejoice. Determine to rejoice. Back to the original passage, verse 13 says this, but rejoice, you're going to see two references to the word rejoice, the same root word that we get the word joy. 
He says, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed, there's the other reference, when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I believe what Peter is getting at here, he's saying we can rejoice because if we have to suffer even to the point of martyrdom, there's going to be a glory that is revealed in your life that would not be that that would not be evident without it. This idea of glory, I again believe that because of the audience that Peter's writing to, largely it's it's Greek-minded people, but also Jewish-minded people. I believe that Peter's also making a reference to what is referred to as the Shekinah glory of God in the New, in the Old Testament. This is mentioned several different times. Just bear with me as I read this, and I'll give you the scriptures. I don't have time for you to, to dig into all these, but I want you to have kind of a backstory about the, the glory of God. It was this luminous glow of the very presence of God. So the idea constantly recurs in the Old Testament, and this is what it says in Exodus 16, verse 7. In the morning, said Moses, you shall see the glory of the Lord. This is the Shekinah glory. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud cover, covered it in, for six days when the law was being delivered to Moses. This is Exodus 24, 1 through 6. In the tabernacle, God was to meet with Israel, and it was to be sanctified with His glory. That's Exodus 29, verse 43. When the tabernacle was completed, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. There's many other references I could share. But the Shekinah glory of God, the very presence of God that came in just this amazing way was known in the Old Testament. And I believe this is actually what Peter is talking about. And if you've studied any sort of people who have suffered martyrdom, even since then, there's this reference to a glow about someone's life when they suffer martyrdom. And I believe this glow, it is there too, the Shekinah glory of God. It's It's the glory of God being revealed of them suffering to the point of death. This is actually what we see with the first martyr, a gentleman by the name of Stephen, who was stoned to death in in Acts 6, verse 15. It says this, All who were sitting in in the Sanhedrin, they looked intently at Stephen, and they saw his face, read this, and they noticed his face was like the face of an angel. That's the way that they described it. Like there was something on him. Like the glory of God was on him and the way that that it was described was like the face of an angel. And if, you know, when, when Peter is saying for us to determine to rejoice, I believe with Stephen, he had already given his life to Jesus. So he just didn't determine to rejoice in that moment. I don't believe so. I believe that he had already given his life to Christ. So if he suffered up to death like he did, he had already determined to rejoice no matter what the cost was. He had already determined that. But we rejoice not because of the pain. We rejoice because we can glorify God by living by grace. We don't rejoice because of the pain. This is one of the lies that Stoicism is, and Stoicism has a resurgence right now. This is one of the lies of Stoicism that we can rejoice because of the pain. Like the pain, like for them, the pain is the point. 
But that's not the point here. We rejoice not because of the pain, but because we can glorify God by living by grace. That although the pain is there, we cling to God and we have the power of God going through us through the Holy Spirit of God. And that when we can endure, God is glorified when we live by that grace. There's another principle. Third one is this. Keep your suffering pure. Keep your suffering pure. This comes from verse 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Keep your suffering pure. Like we can suffer for impure reasons. We can just suffer because of sin. Anytime that we sin, there's a level of suffering. Anytime that we sin and we're, we're separating ourselves from God, there's a level of suffering there. So sin causes us to suffer. Selfishness causes us to suffer. When we choose to say, God, I've got this. I can take this upon myself. I can handle it. You're choosing the path of suffering that is impure, that is not of God. When we choose that pathway, we're actually suffering because of self. So we're not going to be clinging to the power of God to get us through this. We're going to be clinging to more of self. And I believe we can also just suffer for being stupid. I ran out of creativity with that one. Like we can just suffer for being stupid. Like we can just suffer if we just ignore the Sabbath, although it's one of the commands that Jesus obviously did it. We can just ignore that and we can just work seven days a week and we can run ourselves ragged. But don't be surprised if you die at 50, right? Don't, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if you die at 60. Don't be, don't be surprised if the last 10 years of your life you, you live those out and you have no strength and no capacity to do anything else. Don't be surprised. Don't be, you see, those things, that's stupid because he, God has given us things like the Sabbath that was for us as a rest saying, hey, don't be, don't be silly about your life. I've given you the Sabbath, not so you can, just so you can avoid working yourself to death, but be wise with your body, be wise with your time. So we can suffer for being stupid. We can just suffer. We can say, you know what? Yeah, I've done all of this and we can just give it all away. We can. We can suffer and we can put the weight of the world on our shoulders. We can just carry all of the, the worry and the anxiety. But ultimately, it's, it's really stupid to do that when Jesus has already told us, come to me, all you are weary and heavy burden, and, and he will give us rest. See, we can choose to suffer for impure reasons, whether it's sin, whether it's self, or just being stupid. And we're all prone to those things. We're all prone to those things. What Peter is saying is keep your suffering pure. Don't, renounce, don't, don't reject God in the midst of your suffering. Don't reject the life that he's given you in the middle of the suffering. Don't reject the people that God has put around you in the middle of the suffering because God is using all of those things and to help us to keep our suffering pure. Fourth thing we see is don't give way to shame. Verse 16 says this. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that 
name. Peter's saying, hey, you don't need to go out shopping for an identity. If your identity is in Christ, there's no reason to be ashamed. He says, if you claim the name of Christ, there's no shame in that. But let me tell you, any other type of identity is going to bring about shame. Marla and I were having a conversation just a couple of days ago, and I, I'm in char- or I, I started this, this Facebook group for men. And so we started talking about that, probably something I wanted to talk about, and then we kind of like deviated. You know how it goes. Like you start here, and then where, where it stops, nobody knows. And we got to the end of it, and, and I, I was just kind of curious. I said, I wonder how many different Facebook groups there are. Like, I just wonder. And there are so many, I couldn't even find a number. I mean, there's just a million. I mean, who knows? There's just so many. All there are are a list of like the top 10 or 15. But there are, there are Facebook groups for everything. Everything that is imaginable. Every hobby, every like, every belief, everything. I mean, there, there are Facebook groups. And I know what some of you are saying. You're like, that's exactly why I'm not on Facebook. Right, right. I got, I got you. You're trying to put a feather in your cap. I'm about to take it out in a minute. So I got something for you too. Rest in that, okay? But what's interesting about the whole Facebook group phenomenon, and that's not the case with all of them, right? Because I'm in some of these groups. Here's, here's what they offer. They offer identity and community. But isn't that what the church is supposed to be about? People who identify with being in Christ and the church being a family of God. The church is supposed to be the most prominent place where, where our identity is secure in God, where there's no shame, irregardless if we face suffering or persecution, and also there's community. And these Facebook groups offer both. And I just wonder, and this is just conjecture, but I just wonder how many times people go shopping for an identity in these type of groups. I just wonder. You know, you ladies, I have something for you too. Like, I just wonder how many of you go shopping for an identity to be connected with the group on Pinterest. Like, oh, I'm in this group. I'm, I'm here. I just think we have to be really careful on what's going on with our heart. Because that's where shame is going to be. You're going to feel the sting of shame. And if there's any sort of suffering, persecution, anything that happens because of your faith, and you're not connected to Jesus, if your identity is in something else, we won't be able to handle it. And the interesting thing is this. There are all sorts of, of minor identities. I'm a veteran. There's, there's an identity piece there. Like there's, there's an identity piece if you're into sports or this team or that team or not pro sports, college sports. If you drive a truck, what kind of truck? I mean, there's so many different things that offer these secondary or false identities. So we need to surrender ourselves to Jesus to say, no, 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 my identity is in Christ. I, I bear that name. Because of what he bore on the cross for me. The fifth takeaway is this. Consider God's judgment. Consider God's judgment. I believe there's a couple things that are, that are in mind here in verse 17. It, and when Peter says, For it is the time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? So he's, he's talking about this judgment, the judgment for the unbeliever. We know that the ultimate judgment for the unbeliever is, is death, eternal death, eternally separated from God in a real place called hell. That is true. 
But he's also talking about this other type of judgment. And I believe what he's also mentioning here when he talks about the judgment that is beginning with the family of God, I believe what Peter also has in mind is the judgment that had started with the persecution of Nero that we talked about last year when we started the series. The persecution of Nero, I'll catch you up just in case you missed this. Early in the first century, Nero was the the Roman emperor and he was incredibly cruel. He had a lust for building and more and more and more. It was all ego. So the, the city of Rome had been pretty much maxed out. All the buildings were there. It's believed, and, and even Roman historians, non-Christians, believe that Nero was in, he actually started a fire in Rome because he, want, he had a lust for building and more. And he wanted, he wanted to basically to build some things to kind of put his name on them. Problem is the fire got out of control. It burned a lot of the city. A lot of people died. Then, because he couldn't go through and say, oh, I'm the emperor, I did this, because that would look bad upon him, he found the most likely scapegoat, and he hated him anyway, and they were Christians. So there was this this wild and unruly time where they were persecuting Christians. Things so, so heinous that they were putting him in these big amphitheaters and they would literally feed them to animals. Literally put skins over people and then feed them to ravenous animals. And they, they literally would put, they would wrap Christians in these animal hides and then send them out, parade them out, only to have ferocious animals attack them publicly and they would celebrate these things. And he did this to Christians. So I believe this is one of the things that Peter has in mind. He says, consider God's judgment. Like these things are happening. And it's going to start with the family of God. So he says, if you're part of the family of God, you make sure your heart's right. Because when the persecution comes, you're going to see where you really belong. You're going to see if you're in Christ or you're not in Christ. So consider God's judgment. There's another thing that I believe he has in mind. If you could go to the left in your Bible to Malachi 3. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And what's What's really interesting about these four verses is, I believe, again, Peter has these things in mind, but what we're going to see in the first couple verses of this is Peter is making a reference to John the Baptist. Of course, John the Baptist is a cousin of Jesus, and Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet, and he's going he's to make a, a prophetic statement about John the Baptist, who would be the the last Old Testament prophet, except he lived in the New Testament. So it's kind of a, he was that type of of figure and the last of his kind is what the scripture says. So Malachi 3 says this, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. This is John the Baptist. That's literally what it says about John the Baptist in the Gospels, that his job was to prepare the way for Jesus. He says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to my temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in the former years. So I'm not going to explain this passage in full, 
but I will drill down on a couple different things. This idea of, of God's judgment. And again, I believe these two passages are connected. Malachi makes reference to two different things, the refiner's fire and the launderer's soap. And they ultimately are two different things, but they are somewhat connected. The refiner's fire, when he talks about metal, the the way that people in metallurgy would purify metal is they would heat it up to whatever temperature would soften the metal. And then what's pure stays, it, it goes to the bottom, and what's um, impure, excuse me, comes to the top. And then they would skim off the impurities, and what would be left would be the thing that is the most pure. But also there's a mention to the launderer soap. And the soap that they would use was a very strong alkali that would be used to bleach clothing. So it's like an alkali in their day and age. And I believe what, what Peter and Malachi are getting at in these two passages, he says, just know that this judgment is going to to be something that is used to refine you. That if there's pressure and suffering and persecution that happens because of your walk with Jesus, whether it's at home in your workplace or, or rampant in a society, he says, just know that there's something that's happening in your heart, that God is doing something in your heart. And this also is consistent with what we read in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. But also the idea of the launderer's soap and the idea of bleaching something clean. To me, my mind automatically went to Psalm 103. I believe it's verse 12. And that's the passage that talks about when somebody gives their life to Jesus that their sins are as far as east is from the west. That they're clean. That they have a clean slate before God. That the, that the suffering and persecution is, is largely in this judgment that's brought upon the family of God is to, to bring about the impurities in our lives, to expose our weaknesses so they can be taken off by the Holy Spirit of God, but also th- so that we can live as free people. The last takeaway is this from the end of the passage. It's this, rest as you work. Rest as you work. Verse 17, for it is the time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Notice verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So we rest in God as we do the work of the gospel. The word commit is an interesting word in Greek. The word commit is meant to to be this, and this would have meant so much in their culture. In their culture, they didn't have banks, and they didn't have ADT, and they didn't have alarm systems to, to guard their homes. So this idea of commit is also the word entrust. So if, if somebody were to, to leave their home, they could either take all their valuables with them, but that was unwise because there, there was no police. There, I mean, they were in the wild. If they left the city center, they were in the wild. So they could be robbed and thievery was very common. So they, the people wouldn't carry all of their 
put you know, all their valuables with them. Instead, they would entrust their valuables to someone else. They would commit their valuables to someone else. And this idea of commit is, is the idea of entrusting what we think is valuable into or onto someone else. So for us, what we can do is as we rest, as we work, we can commit our lives to God. We just commit that to him because he is the faithful creator. It's what it says in verse 19. So that's the reason why we can do it. Our faithfulness rests in our faithful creator. Our faithfulness and our ability to, to be able to practically live out these six principles that we've talked about is not in our own willpower, but it's in our faithful creator. So I'm gonna give you four different things and then I've asked the band to come up and we're gonna sing a song of declaration. But I'm gonna give you these four different things talking about God as is, uh, is the faithful creator. First thing, God is the faithful creator to his people. God is the faithful creator to his people. Those who would identify with the name of Jesus Christ. Those whose lives are hidden in Christ. Those of us who have done what the scripture says, we've denied ourselves, we've taken up our cross and we're following Jesus. These people. God is the faithful creator to his people. God is the faithful creator to his promises. There's too many to name. God is the faithful creator to his promises. God is the faithful creator to his word. To his word. The things that he said that would happen have happened, are happening, and will happen. He's faithful to his word. We can understand the affairs of the world without it getting so tripped up in it. We can understand the affairs of the world without trying to take on some sort of political identity. We can, we can rest in our faithful creator in, in knowing that, that our identity is in Christ and not selling out or not trying to shop for another type of identity. We can do so because his word tells us. Because God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his word. And he's also, and finally, faithful to his promise. Or his purpose, excuse me. He's faithful to his purpose. God has always been about the same thing. God has sent his people into the world on mission to gain more glory for himself and to bring good into the world. That's why God did what he did. And that's the reason why that we were left here. And that even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of persecution, even to the point of martyrdom, so that we would rest in our faithful creator as his people, living out his promises by his word for his purpose. Would you stand with me? In just a minute, we're gonna sing. And here's what I would love for us to do as we sing this. I don't want you to worry about who's next to you. I want you to sing this song just as a declaration back to God. Of saying, God, I just want to glorify you. I want to honor you. I want to praise you. To use the words of 1 Peter 1. 
Just say, God, I want to do that. So in this place, that's what I want this to be about. I don't want it to be about, about even us. I just want it to be about God and us uplifting our faithful creator. Let's pray together and then we're going to sing in declaration to God. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for your loving kindness. God, we thank you that your promises are true. God, that they have been fulfilled, that they're being fulfilled, and they will be fulfilled. We thank you, Jesus, that salvation is secured only through you. We're so grateful for the cross. We're grateful for the cross that, God, that you did that for us so that now we can truly live for you. God, help us to be free to sing these praises back to you as we claim the promises and say that yes, they are yes and amen in you. Amen.